Welcome to the 3v3 Podcast, your socially distanced hockey chat show. Here are your hosts, Cassie, Pat, and Patrick. Alrighty, so I had to dig up, dig up the question because I totally forgot. <laughs> That's what happens when we need to take a week off to, you know, take a week off. Right. So my question from the previous episode was... If you were the PR person of an NHL team, how would you choose to change the post-game interview situation? Patrick, why don't you kick this one off? Because <laughs> oh, I'd have to wake up to do it. <sighs> Waking up's overrated. It really is. I, uh... I, I'd honestly have them do an, an, an after game report where their their questions are submitted. They're, they're told who is willing to sit around and answer things, but the questions are submitted in writing. And that person has at least like a half hour after the game to deal with it. Because the whole the whole expediency of the the or the immediacy of the the after, you know, the post-game stuff was for those archaic print deadlines. And the vast majority of media is not consumed via print, so take a breath. Let these guys have a breath, the coaches especially. And then you just get to, you know, send them a little written question or something, and they can come out and say, you know, hey, Thanks for the question, so and so. And everybody wants the video on this, the audio bite and the video bite. So, were you talking about NHL officials or teams? I got confused there because what you described would be perfect for questions of officials, would it not? So, uh, yes, it would also be perfect for questions of officials. And I am. <laughs> I am not opposed to officials being allowed or allowing officials to be asked questions, but they still have to mean there's still got to be that sense of anonymity. You know, I, I get, we want transparency into officiating, but you, you know, the angels punish us by answering our prayers sometimes. And the minute you start getting transparency into it, you're really just gonna make life miserable. There's a reason why they took the number or names off of the backs of on ice officials. You don't want them to. You don't really want to be able to put a name to a face. I think in that case, I think it should be um, the on uh, if it's game officials, on ice officials. They should be allowed to answer the questions anonymously through writing. I never think an official should be put in front of the mic. I think it should be done through writing through the officials association and the league. And I bring this up because in the NBA, uh, four or five days ago, there was a situation, something happened in like the final minute of a game and they're just direct questions and 
the officials weren't justifying anything. They just described what they saw, why they, and why they made the call. And the way it read was, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Whether you agree with it or not, there's at least some logic behind the decision. Like, for instance, Game 7 Colorado, or no, uh, Vegas and whomever they played. I don't remember. Vancouver. Vancouver. Yeah, when Ryan Reeves is ejected, you know, I'll be honest, the two video angles I saw, yes, it's a penalty. Yes, it's probably a major, but it'd be like, I'm not a camera. I want to hear your on ice description. Like, what angle could he have taken otherwise? Because there was a video clip of uh, Wes McCauley talking with someone on the Flyers um, during game five or game six against the Islanders. And he was basically describing how your play as a defenseman dictates whether something is interference or not when a player's coming on at you like in a one-on-one situation. And it was a two-second clip. It's like, here's what you do. When I see you do X, because you're changing your angle of approach, that's going to be interference. If you were to just step up into the player or drop back, it's not. But because you move to either side, that's going to get called for me every time. And it's just like, oh, a 15 to 20 second explanation gives you everything you need to know. But uh, back to the the team thing. Um, First... Everything should be done in media rooms. I think locker rooms are great post-practice. But let the guys who actually exerted some energy sit down. We get rid of this, the, the media quibbles of you know the TV camera crew knocking the shorter media members out of the way. You get rid of all of that. The, the players can see everyone who is asking a question at all times. And you know what would be real easy to do? Record all the audio at once and then just release it to all those, you know, individual media partners. So you don't need 40,000 microphones and people holding up their iPhones to a player's face, which just looks stupid. We have the technology. Let's just be a little easier about it but other than that uh you limit it to three individuals per game just i like what they've done as far as bringing individuals up to a table and they're they're showing them but just in a post-game situation just treat it like the you know in between the games press conferences but allow for follow-up questions and leave it at that and just put like a time limit here you have 10 minutes to ask these three individuals one can be the head coach or none can be the head coach and go just limit the number of people to three per game no more than 10 minutes and go if you want uh, if you want to ask anyone anything else you have to do it in writing like patrick suggested i think yeah, pat Sorry, Cassie, but Pat, without my microphone, how are they supposed to know that I'm Scoops McKenzie from the Hockey Writer blog? <laughs> that's why you should flag in there. That's why you should just introduce yourself before every question, not so much to tell the the 
players who you are, but just for posterity on the audio. Coach Torts, Scoop McKenzie, the Hockey Writers Blog. <laughs> I'd like to take you back to the 1935 Stanley Cup Final. Or, you know, here's a funny thing. The PR person, like they do at every coach's press conference or, you know, new GM, someone is called on. All right, question. Why don't you go next? Why don't you go next? And, you know, kind of moderate the discussion. Rather than have the players give, you know, non-answers, you can dictate who asks the questions and who they're asking them to and, you know, moderate the conversation instead of mute it, if that makes sense. So I think these are all fantastic um, suggestions. None of them them will ever happen, right? No, none of them will ever happen, but... Um, what I think would be good is the media getting to submit questions to the coach after the game, the coach coming out and answering the questions and each person is allowed a follow-up question if they need to and moderated, as you said, Pat, and then that's it. It's done for the night. Um, and then the next day have a game debrief as such, you know, where you can have the media, the coach, a couple of players, and again, moderated, and they can start talking about the game after they've had time to review the video so that they can actually give you intelligent questions or answers to your questions. You can ask more intelligent questions and um, you know, do that before practice the next day and call it good. Because it's not like the coaches have the best, you know, seats in the arena, so they they get a great overview of what has actually happened in the game. How many times have you heard the next day at, at a practice or a skate, and it's just like, I went back and looked at the game footage last night, and I was wrong such and such played well or we played like crap or whatever whatever it's just it's almost like you need to reevaluate things from a different position or perspective it's, it's it's like anybody right you go to a game you watch the game in the car ride back home you start reviewing the game you start talking about it and then the next day you think about it some more and you're like oh yeah that's the way it it, it probably went you know and so it's for everybody. The and I think the on ice officials, if there's a, a a major call and a question, a questionable call, a game changing call, should have to answer questions. But again, anonymously, you know, right. where they can just the press can submit a question and they can get one back in writing through whatever channels that happens to be. And I think that would be determined, but um, to be determined, but um, but. I always, whenever I did post-game interviewing, I always thought it was too soon, you know? It's like, clearly, the answer, you're, you're getting superficial questions and superficial answers. And then the next day, when you're actually, when they're talking, being interviewed again after practice, you're getting more in-depth 
answers. Maybe the same superficial questions, but you're getting more in-depth answers. And so, you know, you give the press a little tidbit of what they need to, you know, their little sound bites and things to put into their their articles and media and stuff with what the coach has to provide that night. And then the next day, you can do something a bit more fully fleshed out. So I need, you're not I need just doing. Huh? I need the poll quote for the hockey writer's blog. Yeah. So, so you're, you're not doing your readership or viewership a disservice by giving them superficial crap every night and then not following up the next day. You know, you're just, that's constantly what we're all bombarded with in the media is mostly superficial crap and um, the occasional human interest piece. And that that's a bit more in depth and that's pretty much it. So, um, I think it could be done better. Crazy, I know. All right, good show. Yeah. I'm glad we got to the bottom of that because there have been no other issues as of late. Nothing, nothing interesting has happened in the past, you know, week or two. Or at least in the last 48 hours because... We're recording on Monday, September 7th, and there there was, is it Labor Day north of the border? Yes. They they also have the the extended weekend, just, you know. A long weekend. I know in May they have their May 2-4, and then the next week we have our Memorial Day, but I I can't keep it all. I can barely keep track of what my kids are supposed to do for school every day, so. <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, the, the last 48 hours of actual hockey has been a snooze fest, so. That's what I hear. That's what people keep telling me. But, you know, it's funny because I like low-scoring low games, but maybe that's just me. Oh, I mean... <laughs> I'll say Game 7, uh, was it Game 7, Vancouver and Vegas, which was, in theory, low scoring, was really entertaining. Yeah, but, you know, people, people want goal scoring. That's, like, their primary thing in life when it comes to hockey, or pretty much any sport. It's all about offense, offense, offense. The best defense is a good offense. Blah, blah, blah. Well, let's just multiply a goal by seven then, because we'll get the football, right? Because everyone's fine with a 21-14 football game, right? Well, that's mm-hmm. a three-to-two hockey game. Mm-hmm. With a couple that's of shoes. Wait, wait, wait. Does that mean after every five-on-five goal scored, we can get an immediate penalty shot for bonus point? Mm-hmm. Yes. So power play goals are like field goals, okay? And then five on five goals, you get your X number of points, and then you get to tack on a bonus. Mm-hmm. And you get to choose whether it's the goalie, you know, one-on-one versus goalie, or maybe a two-on-one situation, and then puck goes live immediately thereafter. No new face-off, just straight off the off the penalty shot? Yeah, kind of like a a, a corner kick in. Yes. Soccer. 
anything that you know my hill to die on the fewer face-offs in the game the more entertaining the game is and the better it's played maybe if we instead of doing face-offs we did them like rugby scrums right where they literally line up and just sort of you know push each other around and then the ref throws the puck down in the middle and whoever comes out with it comes out with it or i mean what you're describing is outdoor lacrosse where oh yeah yeah all down two players have to put their sticks essentially backhand side against each other and you gotta scoop it away you 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 have the referee at center ice and you have him toss it into a corner and say go for it (laughs) have you been watching my practices lately (laughs) (laughs) you're not supposed to have seen those cameras oh no uh yeah but no, I. This is another Jeff Americanism, but faceoffs used to start with the puck on the ice. I say we go back to it. I say they line them up just like they do in in world rugby, right? You know, all the guys on the pitch. You, you know, you can put five guys up there, you can put four guys up there, and one hanging back. But you know, you're, you're you engage, you try and shove each other back. The ref just chucks the puck in there and. Whoever gets it out of there gets it out of there. No, linesman puts the puck on the face-off circle inside one of the five circles. Everyone else lines up outside and then blows the whistle. So so dodgeball, really? Yeah. Right? Okay. So each, how about you just make every face-off at center ice, right? Yeah. And, and, li- and everyone lines up on their blue line. The puck's there at the center dot. Ref blows the whistle and everyone charges. Yeah. Or that'd be no fair. Connor McDavid would win every freaking face off. There's no Uh, issue with like bad hits or anything uh, there. Not at all. (laughs) Matthew Barzell, when he's not getting hit in the face by God knows what 40 times a night, would probably have a higher face off percentage. It'd be like 51 to 49 between the two. But poor Matty. Oh. He has taken <laughs> savage beating. So, so I have to ask. I have to ask first. Is yeah, he's listed at six foot. Is he actually six foot, or is he no. actually shorter than that? Yes. Okay. Six foot with skates on and and and. Okay, so he's like five eight, five nine. So he's like five eight, five nine. He has two spacers in each of his. In between the chest, food of his blades. A, a Cuban heeled skates, right? You know, just for that little <laughs> inch or two. Platform, platform. Yeah, uh, no, platform. Well. He would just mess up and admit his actual height. Maybe, maybe the puck wouldn't hit him in the head. Yeah. No, okay, so first of all, the one off the crossbar and back at him in warm up was funny as hell, but a complete. But also another indicator that maybe you should be wearing your helmet out there. Maybe. It knocked the helmet off his head. Oh, that's right. It did. Never mind. Yeah, it did. Maybe you should have your helmet secured then. Well, this is the fundamental flaw with hockey helmets. And one thing I've never understood. The chin strap doesn't do anything. It basically makes sure it more or less stays attached to your body so you can quickly adjust it. Why isn't it attached via like a proper chin strap? 
Like a football helmet? Yeah, or a lacrosse helmet, which is where, you know, my because then they couldn't jaw at each other. That's why. Oh, I don't. They're also know popping you... <laughs> in. They're also popping in like um, uh, teeth protectors. What are they called? I can't even think of what they're called. I like teeth protectors. Mouth guards. Thank you. No, 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 no. I think we're gonna rename them to teeth protectors. Teeth protectors. Um, mouth well, guards. Not, and... not only do they protect their teeth, but they're actually good for their dental health. The way they, che- given the way they chew on them. <laughs> God. Yeah, you know, when, when I when I was playing hockey, women have to wear full cages or full face protection because, God forbid, our pretty little faces get cut. Anyway, so um, what I was playing, I, I just wore a cage. I didn't bother with any of, like, the, the plastic stuff because it was just too much of a hassle, lint and fogging and crap. So um, the guy in the pro shop actually was uh, an assistant um, equipment manager for the Seattle Thunderbirds at the time. And so he jerry-rigged my, my mask so that, or the face mask so that I didn't have to take the straps off. I could just take the helmet off without bothering. <laughs> just all came off. <laughs> so, so you're asking the wrong person about chin straps. <laughs> I was going to say, you, have, you, you need to attend a few more lacrosse matches because some of those guys have absolutely no problem running their mouths with their chin straps. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, there's that too. Well, and that's a funny thing where in indoor, half of them are wearing like modified hockey helmets. Yeah. With a, with a cage that goes down, it, it doesn't, it attaches to the physical helmet, but it never attaches to anything touching your face. But there is a chin strap that you wear with a cup on the bottom. So, you know, everything is snug and secure. And yes, they can, they, they can say some four letter words with those things. But they're four letter words. (laughs) Duck. Goal. Pass. Yeah, have to move your jaw to say to say most of those. Ask ask any hockey player who's had or ask any athlete who's had his jaw wired shut. <laughs> well, I have, and all I got was you know. Nature finds a way. And and <laughs> and then I would generally apologize and say I'll come back and talk to you after your jaw's unwired. <laughs> you know. Just needs more practice. <laughs> I, my my brother broke his when he wrapped his VW Beetle around a light standard by Linwood High School. <sighs> broke his jaw and came home, and next thing I know, there's an entire cabinet full of baby food for the next three. <laughs> it was it four and a half weeks? Because that's all he could eat. <laughs> So, of course, to this day, even though he's a 60-year-old man, I still, you know, hi, Terry, are you hungry, hungry, hungry? (laughs) Yeah, you just, there's some family things you just, you can't let go. (laughs) Oh, Lord, no. And sometimes, you know, you, and and you enjoy living in your bubble without your family. Yes. Like it's a business trip? Kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, 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 very much so. I wouldn't, 
however, wish the Edmonton bubble on my family. Mm, hotel, well, hotel, event center, rink. Are you an Eastern Conference player that's recently traveled to the great province of Alberta? <laughs> <laughs> and call J.G. Wentworth. For <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Batman and Batman and Associates to file a complaint in class action lawsuit about bubble privileges or bubble amenities. Because you started it off like one of those law ads. Are you an Eastern Conference player that's recently been transferred from the Toronto bubble to the Edmonton bubble and found it as amenities lacking? <sighs> I did. I do work with quite a few law firms dur- during the day job, so they must be rubbing off on me. <sighs> Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten that they were moving during the conference finals and not for the Stanley Cup final. Although there was like a 36 to 48 hour period where some of that was in question, where I guess maybe if uh, the Islanders had won the series earlier, maybe games one or two could have still been played in Toronto. That just kind of went away as the Flyers got their hopes up way too much and extended the series to seven. My poor Carter Hart. He had no hope out there. You only had one. You could only pick one. You couldn't have both Barzell and Hart. I know. I still I know. It's not like the rest of that division's getting any better. Carter Hart will have plenty of hit chances. And without I, an asterisk. I'm not putting in uh, oh don't oh you see, I heard You're that. Not. Okay. I'm muting. You go, son, you go. <laughs> I've heard the question way too much about whether this is the easiest, the hardest. The challenges are put there in front of you. You're given a very specific task, and then we got to qualify the hell out of it. Jeez. Some of these teams are going to win, I'm doing the math, 19 games to win this thing. And by teams, I mean one, because only one of them had to, you know, win a qualifying round. So I'm not sure in the interest of Team Chaos whether I want to see the Islanders win it or the Dallas Stars, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But, geez, just let the guys win their games. That's all they have to do. That's all they have to do is just win the games in front of them. They have no control because, you know, God forbid we get interesting and let, you know, the top seeds pick who they want in the first round or do a draw. But you have no control over who you play. It's... You win your regular season, you get your seeding, and that's what you get. Legislature dictates the rest of who plays who. So it doesn't matter if the Carolina Hurricanes won in 2006 and you think it was the weakest or most boring Stanley Cup champion ever. Hello, Jeff Merrick. Call me sometime. <laughs> I can give you some notes for, you know, November when you have nothing to talk. Oh, wait. You, you've got a, a treasure trove of hockey geekery to uh, fall back on. Uh But I hear that excuse coming out more and more again. And as we've had some more dead time, given that there haven't been three, four games a night, we're hearing these questions again, especially as, you know, 
the Islanders are going to advance or, you know, the Bruins go out early and, oh, St. Louis Blues had four players that, you know, had suffering the effects of COVID and never really got their training up to par. It's just excuses. They're extenuating circumstances and things dictated out of our control in everyone's day-to-day life and everyone's day jobs or night jobs or whenever you work. You just do what's put in front of you and you do it well. The players aren't going to care less about winning this cup. They're going to get a fancy ring. They're going to get their name on the cup. You can't take that away. Just let the guys play the game and enjoy something out of this. Or be petty like Steve Simmons. I don't know. So you're you're I, I leave it up to you to take this conversation whichever direction you think best. I need to take a breath. <laughs> I wish I was a tea drinker right now, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm just gonna let it hang. Because <laughs> Bam. Well, so it's all to justify what people want to believe anyway, right? I mean, perception is reality and everybody perceives things differently. So their reality is different. And so they have to justify their reality to others by saying things like that. Or just repeating the same thing over and over again, like Tyler Sagan's been invisible and Tyler Sagan hasn't played well, or where are the Dallas's big guns as they are three games away from the Stanley cup final and yet, I've heard nothing to go along with that that says, oh, here's why they're not playing well, or here's why this player's not doing X. Pointing no fingers thing. is more fun than actually coming up with real reasons. Come on. You know that? burying a guy where you can say, man, look what he did. He did this and this and this. Like, everyone was gushing over Dmitry Filipovich. You know, getting a quick gif of Mark Stone intercepting a pass in the neutral zone and taking it in. Just he sat back, he waited on the back of his heels, timed it, moved forward, took the puck. And everyone was loving that. But we won't do it the other way around. We just say someone played bad or got skated around without bringing circumstance or Here's a funny thought. Details into why is a player playing bad? Well, critical thinking skills are lacking. Now, the other thing, too, to keep in mind is that if someone's not creating offense, especially a forward, then they are playing bad, even though they may be playing fantastic defensively and maintaining like puck possession and keeping the puck out of their zone. But if they're not shooting and they're not scoring, then they're having a bad game. And, hey, Ty, if it weren't for Tyler Sagan and a few of the things he did in Game 7 against Colorado to bring the game closer, I believe it was after their, the second period uh, of, I think it was Game 7. I'll have to go back and look. But he made an intercepted play after he was freed, like Anton Hudobin, who is my favorite for the Conn Smythe right now. He, he was a free elf and got to get away from Corey Perry and Jason Dickinson. You know, t- 
two arguable fourth liners in the NHL by most metrics people like to follow, whether it be points, whether it be Corsi, Fenwick, whatever, whatever. He's freed away from them and their turnovers and giveaways at the neutral zone and the offensive blue line. And he gets the puck in deep and it leads to a sustained scoring chance for Dallas and Oh, I don't know. The recipe for their third period and their quick comebacks seemed to work, and they were able to force overtime because of plays like that. It's like when you play with good players, you're able to produce offense, but when you have guys on your line that constantly turn the puck over, and I'll just say this. Sagan's been a net neutral player this playoffs. He's been on the ice for just as many goals for as goals against at five-on-five situations. And guess what? 75 to 80% of all playoff players are in the exact same boat. Everyone looks at him because he knelt during an anthem, because he has a $9.85 million cap hit, because he, you know, has tattoo sleeves. He is being singled out, but he's not. He's playing also being. Bad. He's, he's not also playing being great. Singled out. Go, Go ahead. ahead. Oh, no. Well, he's being singled out because, well, he's an easy target. He's also being singled out because of his reputation that he brought with him from Boston. Oh, you mean the reputation that was kind of given to him by what was said about him in videos, would you not? Yes. Yes, and that's the thing with hockey is that the reputation you get when you're young sticks with you throughout your career, unless you're able to like drastically become a goal, you know, a goal scorer in a huge, massive way. Um, oh, you, oh, because you mean hockey like, men are lazy. Oh, you mean like maybe potentially, I don't know, committing a crime, like getting a DUI and running a truck into a donut shop and then, oh, coming back and, you know, winning the con Smythe and the Selkie. That never happens, right? I keep wanting to say Craig McTavish. (laughs) (laughs) I I was going for recent history because I think, you know, uh, a certain individual is up for the Selkie Trophy again because we can only nominate seven players Uh, every decade. You know, it's uh, Craig McTavish who was driving drunk, killed someone, got thrown in jail for a year for what was involuntary manslaughter or something. And then comes back and is winning Stanley Cup. So, do I have that right, Patrick? <laughs> yep. You could also throw Danny Heatley in there. Yeah, that's yep. where I was going to go to next. And oh, he had a couple of fifty goal seasons, and we kind of forget about that. I don't think the Snyder family will ever forget, unfortunately. And I don't think Danny himself will. But no, he. No, I, let's. Yeah, let's take a step back. We're not yeah, saying he, these people don't carry any remorse. Right. It, it's, the, that, it's the media fan perception that we're talking about here. <laughs> every, everybody else just sort of wants to sweep it under the rug and forget about it. Like, right. it, like it was some sort of youthful indiscretion. You know, no. Uh, damn near 30 year old. Yeah, damn near 30 year old man driving his truck into a freaking Tim Hortons is not youthful indiscretion. Oh. No. 
No. But at the time, playing well, it's easy to forget. Or when they're playing bad, it's easy to pile on. And yet, it's also easy to just keep doing what everyone's always been doing since they were a rookie and, or, you know, third-year guy or whatever, and nobody bothers to reassess the player. They just stick with their, like, early on, you know, reputation, and that's stuck with them for their entire career. Because hockey men are lazy. (laughs) Well, thank God Pete Shear... Thank God Pete Chiarelli is not one of them actively. Like, like he, he, he's still in contract limbo, but he's not an active hockey man. Um, and if Pierre Maguire <laughs> has anything to say about it, maybe it'll stay that way. Oh, dear God. What are they doing? So, I, like, I like the theory that some names are thrown out there by people just to get their names out there. Right. And then other names come from the insiders who actually know, oh, we are talking to these people. But sometimes like, you know, in in an Alan Walsh, in an Alan Walshian sense, you just throw this person's name out there like Pierre McGuire is in consideration for this. Well, yeah. Sure. Everybody with a pulse and a heartbeat's technically in consideration for the job. If there was was an open application process, my name would be in there, too. It doesn't mean anything, but my name is in consideration because someone has to read it. So... I, And I was going back and forth with Cassie about this. I'm secretly hoping that at least Arizona may be putting Pierre's name out there and they're doing this as a favor to hopefully get some more NBC broadcasts. And then she countered with the opposite where Cassie said, Oh, maybe they're doing this so they get less NBC broadcasts. So less people see what the hell's going on. With, you know, the tire fire that is the roster. Chaka left the team with. Uh, you mean analytics, darling? Oh, wait, no. Actually, the vast majority of the analytics committee didn't really care for him. Well, the vast majority never... of the analytics community will have a problem with me until they're willing to have a conversation or watch a game, but look over the same things at the same time. <laughs> God, God forbid we talk to people. Uh... Right, because I have numbers to back me up. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm right because <laughs> lies, damned lies, and statistics. I, can I know, right? Generate numbers <laughs> that prove anything. You want me to show you that two plus two equals five? Great. There's mathematical proofs out there that show that. Are mm-hmm. they right? No. Are they technically correct? No. Are they theoretically correct? Yes. Talent's easy to spot. Talent is hard to curate and well, you just put a little bit of salt on it. Yeah. If you want to curate it, you just put a little salt on it. Let you know, leave it in a cedar room. No nitrate though. Years. We're not we're doing no, nitrate no, free. No. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a little apple wood in there. 
I, I could possibly be that I'm just really craving bacon too right now. Who, who doesn't at all times? I mean, come on. Vegans? No, actually, you know what? Golden I bet Patrick, they crave bacon. probably. I bet um, they crave bacon too. There, there is vegan substitute bacon. I know, but okay. I bet they eat it and still crave real bacon. It's <laughs> like you know, this is this is bacon adjacent, but mm, you know. Mm. You've got enough about the barbecue I'm doing later today. Oh, okay, good. I was about to make a really terrible Scott Pilgrim joke, but oh, you saved me from it. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's like with anything, even, you know, corporate, right? I mean, you you can only quantify so much in anything, human action, human activity, and and. There's always going to be a bunch of things you just cannot quantify. Or unquantifiable. Or you can read way too much into it. Or you can try to quantify it anyway and fail miserably. Yeah. It's like when you're not the person doing the actual action that's being observed and tracked, you have no influence on that exact event you you can offer up coaching guidance suggestion but unless you are doing the actual act it's completely out of your control we're all guessing gms are basically guessing some are better at at it than others (laughs) god most of them are terrible at it though (laughs) except for mark bergevin i i genuinely think he's kind of doing a good job and depends on the year (laughs) <laughs> well, it depends on the year, but I'll say this. People who are good at their jobs, they make mistakes, but the really good people clean up after them very quickly. Like Jim Rutherford makes way too many mistakes, but he knows how to make a mistake go away real fast. Hello, Thomas Caprolet to the uh, Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> yeah, but he tends to make mistakes go away by making other mistakes. Oh, it I just, said he makes happened. way too many. Yeah, it's just, but, oh, I made this huge mistake. I'll make it go away by making another mistake that'll make this big mistake seem less mistakey. Hello, Jack <laughs> Johnson. Yeah. Jim's uh, gonna Jim. And if you're listening, Greg Wyshynski, and I know you're not, drop the Werther's gate. Just, just, just drop that bit. It doesn't work. It does not work. It was cute once. Well, the problem is if you've ever interviewed or just spoken with Rutherford, there are so many better impressions he could go with instead of here's an old guy. There's the crumudgety old guy bit just <laughs> waiting there because he is he is very quiet and kind of soft spoken and talks like this and oh you could take that. You could take gags in a million directions, but he's Wilfred Brimley from the firm, right? Thank you. You nailed right. it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just going to meet my mic and walk away. You nailed it. Because that's that's how he's always come across to me. Now, I've never talked to the man individually, but just come across in all the interviews and things I've read about him. He just comes across as Wilfred Brimley in the firm. Just a kindly old gentleman that just sort of sits there and looks unintimidating on the surface but 
when he opens his mouth, it's, oh, okay. What do you think I am, the pool boy? You know? Oh, no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at least Bergevin, he kind of cleaned up for his mistakes a couple of years ago and didn't put his team into cap hell a la, let's say, Vancouver. Here are two quote-unquote playoff teams. One was, one wasn't. We can argue some antics later. Um, they both played in the postseason. A good GM gets away or gets out of their mistakes and course corrects. So, like, everyone harps on Jim Benning and all the terrible contracts forced down by ownership. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if if Jim Benning can get rid of one or two of his deadweight contracts, I would put him in the good GM list. No way. I, I am. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this idea of a good GM though. No, seriously. What does that even mean? <laughs> Especially in the NHL. Cause they all, they all do have their own particular brand of bad, you know, either someone doesn't, isn't good at drafting or someone isn't good at developing or someone isn't good at trading or someone isn't good at all of those or a couple of those or. I Okay. <laughs> I'll do this. I'm going to throw a name out there and you pick it apart. Cause I think I've found one. Joe Sackick. I don't know enough about his trade history to be able to tell you that. The Matt Duchesne Shane trade. That's all you need to know. The Philip Grubauer trade. The the um, Tyson Berry trade. Yeah, but I don't know who was traded for all of those people. <laughs> oh, Duchesne made a haul. He got right. Sam no, Gerrard. But I don't remember who he got. That's oh, that's Sam Gerrard and Kale McCarr, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. When okay. one was one was an actual player and the other one was a draft pick. Wasn't right. wasn't McCarr a draft pick or was he signed? No, he draft was pick. a draft pick. It yeah. was that draft. Right. Okay, so there's his there's his develop there's his drafting, there's his trading. Okay. And the Tyson Berry deal was basically I'm not paying this guy. Right. I need a second line center. So welcome to Colorado, Nazem Kadri. Yeah, but he still has Zadorov. That's the one. So, so like, Zadorov is not a bad four, five, six. Right, he's not. He makes stupid decisions at bad times and takes bad penalties. He could be a good player. He has the ability to be a very good NHL defender. Don't get me wrong, and he does have that. Does show that at times, but. He doesn't have a lot of impulse control going on there. He, he, he does things that maybe he shouldn't. And just, I mean, Gerard, Makar. Um, Eric Johnson, which wasn't Johnson's, a sacking deal, but. Right. I mean, he's, he, again, as I've said before, I think he's good. I don't think he's top two defender good anymore. Um, oh. See, I think he is with Makar because you've got the guy who runs rough shot. You've got your Bobby Orr and you've got, you know, the pylon that was with Bobby Orr that stopped everything coming the other way when Bobby Orr was all the way down below the dots. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. 
Right. That's it's it's sort of like the San Jose issue they've had. They had to find the Brent Burns whisperer. Right. And for a while it was Brendan Dillon because Brendan Dillon was, you know, coming into his own a little bit, was more of a stay at home guy, was more for Brett Burns to go off and do his, you know, Sasquatch wildman routine. And Brendan Dillon was always there holding down the fort. Then then something happened with their chemistry. But anyway, it's you know, you 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 accentuate the positive, de-emphasize the negative in each player. Right. And you just sort of balance out. So Yeah, I don't know. I'm just wondering why Sidorov is still there. <laughs> I've always wondered that, though. I'm like, you know, he has his moments of good and his moments of bad, but mostly he's in the lineup because he's a big body and he likes to hit. And if he were a smaller player, he would not be in the lineup. He's great. At, like Pat said, he's great out there at a 5'6". Yeah. And you can, you, can, you can fix some of those other things, but as a 5-6, your, your minutes are limited. You tend to play situations more. So You're not in desperate situations having him at 25 being a upcoming RFA. You have no problem kind of working with him on short-term deals than, say, signing a, a Jack Johnson or a Justin Schultz or a even a Mike Green up until, you know, when the writing was on the wall about a year ago with his career. You know, he, he, oh, yeah, he, he much, poor guy. Yeah. But good for him. Like history, I think will look kindly upon Mike Green. Yeah. I hope, I hope it does. Cause he's, I think he's earned it. So Joe Sackick, I think he was penalized early for being too patient. And I'm trying to see, if he made the initial Ryan O'Reilly trade. I don't remember if that was him as the quote-unquote general manager. He was definitely the VP of Hockey Ops at that point. Yeah, I don't think that one was him. Which, in hindsight, was kind of a win for the Avalanche because that trade immediately came to mind as Cassie was bringing up Sidorov. Um... And I'm also going to wonder if, say, in two or three years, if St. Louis struggles, if he's not on the move again, contract be damned. But he he's avoided making the big mistakes and small mistakes that he has made, like, say, uh, Carl Soderberg. You know, paying too much for mid-level guys. Oh, where did he go last season? You know, I was shocked in the first round to realize Carl Soderberg was playing for the Arizona Coyotes. Yeah. So he, he, he makes the little things go away, and he's doing a, a decent job. But maybe one of the bigger things is how much staff turnover is there? You know, outside of, you know, walk quitting, how often are they swapping out you know, assistant coaches or replacing scouting staff or, you know, it's one thing when you, you know, have to replace an AHL coach or assistant coach because they're, they're moving up the ladder to a new position, a new organization. That's probably a good thing and a good sign where you're, you're picking talented individuals that are sought after, but 
there's not a ton of turnover and the patience she showed with Jared Bednar when you have some consistency in the same people around and you let people do their jobs, it seems to be working for them. That's exactly what I was going to bring up next is, you know, people were calling for Bednar's head after that, you know, that really craptastic season. And he just was like, no, hang on, hang on. When you change a coach mid season, the team doesn't magically look like they're playing completely different systematically or stylistically. There are a couple tweaks along the way. It takes a while to plan things out, plot things out, and say, all right, you guys, you do this. You know, this line, play this way, this defense. Oh, we were doing this, and this is why we kept turning the pucks over in this situation. No, that takes a lot of time and analysis, and then just changing things on the fly is hard. Constantly evolving or changing coaching staff like, oh, what kind of Toronto has had to do throughout Mike Pagcock and going into Sheldon Keep, and then given what, you know, Florida had done for a while or what Stan Bowman did to uh, Joel Quinville, firing his assistants. It's, that's to me, is a bigger sign of you can have success by just having successful players. But when you're constantly changing staff, that's when I think – your team eventually is going to hit bottom because then too many conflicting messages, changes of approach. How many different Edmonton Oilers head coaches have there been in the last decade? And how much success have they had because of it? How many different head coaches and GMs have there been in the Buffalo Sabres? And how much success have they had of it? So yeah, I mean, you can't... Go Go ahead, I was just going to say, well, I mean, you can't, if you can't get established, then you have nothing to show for it. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I called you Cass. Sorry. That's all right. I was going to say uh, Mike Sullivan. Do you think he's going to do better now that Todd Reardon's back? Because how long was Todd Reardon out of a job? Yeah. And hey, I mean, you could look at stability the other way and look at what David Poyle does in Nashville. And then you have to wonder, well, if there's a lot of stability with coaching staffs, why the heck is he so quick to turn over lots of pieces of his roster? Because he clearly doesn't blame the coaching staff for not being successful, but the mix of players that he has. Mm hmm. Can we all sort of step back a minute and just appreciate the weirdness of that whole thing? Trotz was there 16 years, 15, 16 years. Mm-hmm. And could barely get them. And I, and I'm saying that in a, in a weird phrasing, but they couldn't really ever get any traction in the playoffs. Trotz goes to Washington, which admittedly has a higher talent bar than any of the Predators teams that he had. And bada-boom, bada-bing, Stanley Cup, right? Okay, so clearly that's, you know, good coach, great team, right? Now the Islanders. What is that? I don't... I'm not going to say the Islanders are, are any more... Maybe marginally more talented than some of the best Predators teams, but marginally... 
and look what he's doing with them. So how does Poyle still have a job, I guess, is what I'm getting down to. Because <laughs> if that Some is ca- a glaring indictment. Well, <sighs> Some owners um, actually are okay. Um, like the Mariners. Some owners are okay with a team being mediocre. They make the playoffs more than they don't. And, and that son thinks that's good enough. Some owners are thinking that's good enough. Yeah. And even as weird as whatever the Predators look like next season, because I don't know what to think of them going into whenever the next season starts, but they're they're just kind of something. They, they're going to run into a rough patch where I think – Barry Trot is all right. Um, Patrick is a recovering habaholic. I I say this knowing this is going to sound outrageous, but doesn't Barry Trotz just remind you of Scotty Bowman? Even dating back to his Montreal days, a little bit, and that's. I don't think he's the progressive thinker and and whatnot that that Bowman was, but he knows how to maximize what he's given. And he's never given a whole hell of a lot, even up till the end of Nashville, when they were, you know, they were making it to the second round consistently. That team has always had a real solid goaltender or two and mm-hmm. an amazing defensive core. And just enough up front to be somewhat dangerous occasionally. And given the division that he's in, like the teams that are succeeding now as the Ovechkins and the Crosbys go into their later stage of their career, it's the teams with the best defensive cores that play the best structure that are. They may not be winning the division in the regular season, but they sure are doing well in the playoffs. Defense wins the cup, right? I think I forget who said it, and it may pretty sure it was on Hockey Central last week. It's they're comfortable with two one games in the regular season. What makes you think they're not going to be comfortable with two one games in the playoffs? Yeah. Because that's what playoffs end up being, right? Two one, three two games. Yeah. And if you're you comfortable see- in one goal games. You saw really talented teams like Carolina that the goal differential during their series against Boston was pretty negligible. They were only losing by a goal each game, but holy cow, did they look panicky in those tight situations. If they didn't have a a one or two goal lead, which they never had more than a two goal lead at any point, um, things were suspect. Barry Trotz teams right now isn't going to do it. Where his clubs sink or swim is what are their special teams doing? If his special teams can win, his team could win the cup. Yeah, if that power play gets even remotely glowy warm, they're <laughs> going to be an interesting, interesting team to watch yeah. play against Tampa. And I can say the exact same thing about Tampa because they went. Their their power play was non-existent against uh, Columbus. Their power play yeah. has always been like 
pretty it's, bad. It's occasionally had some bright spots, but since Cooper's been coach, it's mostly just been bad. Generally speaking. But it, it started to tick up a little. Yeah. And, and I mean, some of that too is Stamkos is still out. He's not expected to play this round. Which um, says he, he's going to be the the Eric Cole of this year's playoff should, you know, Tampa be in the cup finals and make it into game six or game seven, or he'll, he'll, he'll be the Oscar Limbaum for where he will just come in kind of at the end and be that. Oh my God. The Steven Tancos's music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. All right. I'm, I, I think I can wrap this one because we're starting to get a little long. But bringing up Tampa and the power play and Sam Coast being out, it's... For me, I don't... I think I feel... I can't think of another player I feel worse for in this year's playoffs than Stamkos. Is there a player, a coach, someone who's either inside the bubble or outside the bubble? Is there someone during this playoff that you really feel bad for? This has been the 3B3 Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at 3B3 Podcast. We're available for NHL consulting at reasonable fees.